about resurrection. If you had asked anyone during the time of Christ of those who believed in resurrection, because some didn't, but if you would ask them, when does the resurrection happen? And they would all have responded at the end of the world. And this is what perplexed them. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, it signaled that it was the end of the world in one way. And the start of a new one. This is why the New Testament's loaded with language like what we find in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if any person is in Christ, that person is a what? New creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Somehow these early disciples knew that Jesus' resurrection wasn't just about him, that it was the start of something that would include all peoples, would include them. And so we read another text later on as they emerge, Colossians 1. Jesus is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, and watch, the firstborn, which means there's a second born, the third born, the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. They believed that his resurrection was the start of theirs. And they could now be resurrected in some way, maybe not physically because they hadn't died, but maybe spiritually resurrected, which terms like born again get recaptured. The new had come. They could be resurrected from being stuck in life. They identified with phrases like becoming more than a conqueror or when I can do all things in Christ or statements like sin shall not have dominion over you. All this language that's in the New Testament about winning over death and winning over bondage, it's all language of resurrection. It's resurrection language. But there's something inherently confusing uh, in these claims. I'm in Tulsa and the allergies have returned. Praise the Lord. (laughs) There's something inherently confusing in these claims because if the new has come, then why is there so much old hanging around? And the answer is given that there is an overlap with the old and with the new. Uh, uh, Not unlike the daffodils that show up in Tulsa in the spring, right? They, They signal to us that spring has come, but we all know there's a good bit of winter left, right? Spring and winter somehow coexist for a while. The resurrection of Jesus was like the appearance of the daffodils. It signaled the start of a new age, the start of new life, but there was still a good bit of death that's left. And we live in a time when new life and death coexist, overlap. Another way Christians talk about this apparent tension between the new and the old is to say, the kingdom is here, but not yet. It's here, but not yet, not yet fully. Theologians call it the S is a big word, the eschatological tension. It's his, his presence, his kingdom, his rule is here, but not yet. We live in that, in the tension. And though the kingdom is actively released into the world, that's why we're supposed to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is. We enter into that by somehow we bring more of the daffodils, more of the spring, 
as we cry out to our God. And, but the reality is the kingdom won't be fully released until Jesus returns. As the creed that we say says, he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. Until then, fullness isn't here. So there's a tension that abides between the new and the old. And in the tension between that new and old, we cannot live in denial. (laughs) There continues to be pain and tragedy that echo inside the church and outside the church in the world. Even though Jesus has conquered death through resurrection, there continues to be violence. Just this morning, if you caught the news in Sri Lanka, this Easter morning, people gathered in churches like this one, worshiping, thanking God for the resurrection. Bombs started going off. Over 200 killed this morning in churches and hotels, over 500 people injured this morning, Easter morning, around the world, in Sri Lanka. Where was the resurrection victory for those folks? Where was the new? It's still present. It's still working. But there's other things working. There's death still working. In an age when resurrection freedom is afoot, addiction still snags people in merciless ways. There's the loss of health. There's child abuse. There's slavery of all sorts. There are relationships on life support, cancer, homelessness, joblessness, war. We live in a tension between the darkness that we embraced in Lent and the bright promise of Easter morning. Faith is about learning how to navigate in that tension. That's what it's about. Here's some good news about that. After Jesus' resurrection and right before his ascension, Jesus says this to his disciples. This is out of Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you can go with confidence and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then watch this. And surely, because he's risen, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. In other words, before everything that's evil is dispelled, he's still with us. Resurrection means Jesus is still alive and he found a way to stick around with us. I love this. It's such a far-fetched promise. I mean, it's crazy to think what he's saying is the world's enchanted. That, that, That behind the obvious, somehow Christ is present. And then if we can dare to press in, he's present via the Holy Spirit. And because the Spirit fills all things everywhere, it means that in our lives this morning, Christ is present. Before you got here, Christ was present with you. While you were sleeping last night, Christ was present with you. I don't always believe it. I wish I could say I always believed it. I don't always believe it, but I'm always haunted by the question, what if it's true? And, uh, and then I find myself in pursuit of, of the spirit because I'm thinking, this might be true. I would hate to live and not experience it. 
That's why I'm a revivalist at heart, right? I, I long for encounters with the holy. <laughs> this is really the point of the appearance stories that, that are talked about Jesus through the gospels after his resurrection. Here's one of them you'll recall. This is John 20. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked. Okay, so doors are locked. Nobody's going in. Nobody's going out. Nobody's coming in or out. They were afraid. Jesus all of a sudden comes and stood among them. What does that mean? He didn't use the door. In other words, he just appeared. No knocking, no doorway usage. And he said to them, peace be with you. And after he said this, they had to be freaked out, right? Right? And so what does he do? He shows them his hands and his side. He said, chill, it's me, really? It's really me. And after he said, the disciples were overjoyed when they realized it was the Lord. And then my favorite one happens a week later with Thomas. This is picking up in verse 24. Now Thomas called Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus sort of appeared that time. So the other disciples said, we've seen the Lord. And, but Thomas says to the man, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger to his, where his nails were and put my hand to his, I'm, I'm not gonna believe this. You know, sometimes he gets a bad rap for this. I just think he was a pragmatist. He was probably saying, you guys are in such despair. You're probably having you know, you know, crazy uh, kind of delusional visions of some sort and he was trying to call them into reality. But then a week later, it says, his disciples were in the house again and this time Thomas is with them. And though the doors were locked, Nobody coming in, nobody going out. Jesus came and stood among them saying, peace be with you. And then he looks to Thomas and he said, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting, but believe. Now, sometimes when I read these stories, I like to pretend I'm in the room. Right? And try to imagine, whoa, 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 what's going on? Did you ever try to imagine what Thomas would have been thinking at this point? I mean, he just said a week before, hey, unless I put my finger in his hands and put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe this. And all of a sudden, here's Jesus. And he say, hey, Thomas, good to see you. Put your finger in my hand. Put your hand in my side. Don't be, don't be a disbelieving, but believe. Thomas had to think in his mind, wait a minute. How did you know I said that? I mean, you weren't here, or were you? See, the, these appearance stories after the resurrection, all s scattered through the Gospels, scream, I am with you, whether you see me or whether you don't. I am with you whether you feel like it or you feel like it's not true. I am with you. It's the promise of Hebrews 13. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And the promise endures for all of us. Will we dare to believe it? Enough to look for him. To seek for him. See, the, the promise is unambiguous. It's claiming that Jesus can be contacted. That he's alive. <laughs> we just need to decide whether we're willing to pursue to enter into a kind of where is Waldo campaign. You've all seen those, maybe not. <laughs> Google it. The trick is remembering he is hiding within the fabric of our lives. This shouldn't surprise us. 
Isaiah 45 and 15, when God is disclosing himself to Israel, he says, truly, you are a God who hides himself. Why would he do that? What if that's actually happening in your life, that God's in your life, but he's hiding? Faith is all about daring to believe that enough that we seek him. The text in Hebrews says, and without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to God must, number one, believe that he exists. Where? In your life. Somehow he's in your world, tucked away in your experience. And you believe it enough that you will earnestly seek him, that he rewards people who earnestly seek him. See, faith is about believing he's there enough that you seek him. When... My son Michael was six months old. I had a Seiko watch that my dad gave me. And I took it off because he wanted to play with it. You know, you're, I was working and you were sitting in the, in the uh, you began to crawl pretty early. And, and he was sitting next to me while I was working, doing stuff, reading or whatever. I was doing. And he got my watch and he's trying to put his mouth on my watch. And I thought, oh, you know, he's bothering me. He's like, here, take it. <laughs> and so I gave him the watch. And... Uh, I forgot about it. The next morning, I thought, where's my watch? I thought, oh, I gave it to Michael. So I went down to where we were sitting, and I could not find that watch. I looked all over. I looked. I thought he crawled and put it under somewhere. I, I, I thought of checking his diaper. <laughs> I looked. I'm like, can you, for a good half hour, I'm looking everywhere, can't find it. And when I was looking up on the top of the refrigerator in a place where I hadn't been since we moved in there, I'm looking for it, I was on the seek, right? And I was seeking beyond what it could have possibly been. I realized it wasn't there. It was lost. And the minute I thought it was lost or that it really wasn't there to be found, all the seek in me stopped. I never looked for it again. See, I think the reason we don't seek God is not that we're not holy enough. It's not that we're too sinful. It's not that we're too, we're not good enough. I, I just think we don't believe he is with us. Why would he be with you? Are you that important? Do you do that much great stuff? Would you want to be with somebody that mixes it up and fails as much as you? He's not with you. Why would you look? He's not there. Augustine wrote, late have I loved you, beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you and see, you were within and I was in the external world and sought you there. And in my unlovely state, I plunged into those lovely created things which you made. You were with me and I was not with you. What if the claim of sacred text is true, that God is with you? I mean, this is the basis in the historical church of why we connect with each other in community. We're supposed to help each other catch God. This is one of the reasons why there were specialists, they were called spiritual directors, who in the historical church had kind of got lost in the Reformation, but people that would, not counselors per se, but there were people that would listen to your sacred story and say, wait a minute, hmm, so someone was messing with your porridge, you're telling me. And somebody was messing with your chair. Hmm? And somebody was doing something with your bed, messed up the bed. Right? There's something Goldilocksy going on here. 
Something's going on and they help us find God in our lives. Sometimes we need help to find him. I mean, what if when you get home today, there's a note on your kitchen table and the note says, hi, Ed Gunger here. I'm in your house. I dare you to find me. Now you've got some choices here. You, you can ignore it, think it's a hoax. You can dial 911. Or you could go on the hunt. See, the biblical claim is that God is filling you and everyone around you. If you dare to buy into it, you'll go on the, on the hunt. You'll start to seek. Even Paul to the pagans. These are people outside the context of faith as we understand it. He told them, the pagans, guys, he's not far from you that you would reach out to him. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. In him we live. In him we move. You can't get any closer to you or him because he's just with you. In him, the reason you have being, the grounding of your being is God himself. He's saying that to the pagans. This means God surrounds all of us and is present in all of us, even amongst the people outside of faith or of other faiths. We, don't, we just don't see him. We possess a kind of spiritual blindness. People may not be aware of God in their lives and they may not be impacted by his presence in their lives, but that doesn't mean he isn't right there with them. Human ignorance does not displace God. This means that when we share the gospel with others, we're not bringing God to them. We're just revealing the God who's already been with them. God lives and moves with them and gives them being. We're just trying to say, don't live in the ignorance of that. Something beautiful is going on. The idea that Christ is alive and able to be contacted is central to the Christian story. It's the currency of the resurrection. This is why Paul makes this audacious claim in 1 Corinthians 5, 15. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have the hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all people. I mean, he's hanging a lot on this resurrection thing. If this is true, what I'm calling it to in closing here, is I think we need to be committed to two central things. One, to being the daffodil people. To be okay with spring and winter being jammed together. Some of you are going through real battles right now. Some deep kimchi. And things may feel hopeless. Whatever your battle is, whatever you're walking through, whatever you feel locked up by, whatever you feel you'll never be able to push past it, let me tell you what today means, what resurrection means. There's no way death wins in your life. You may not be walking in much of new right now, but if you become a seeker, 
you will. <laughs> Even if it's not till death, the wrongs get put to right in God's economy because of the resurrection. And we'll start over the next few weeks. Next week, we'll be talking about how to tap more into that resurrection life. But first of all, just decide it's okay that there's death surrounding you and that there's life with you at the same time and begin to become a seeker as a result, which is number two. Jump in on that Where's Waldo campaign. Start seeking even if you don't believe, seek him. That's what I love about God. Even the people that say, I'm not sure I believe, if you just start calling out to him, he will show up. <laughs> There's a this story about this Orthodox priest who had this agnostic uh, uh, doctor, a medical doctor that was attending his church. And the doctor just said, honestly, he said, Father, I, I don't believe much. He said, do you have any suggestions? And the, the priest stopped for a minute. He said, well, he said, why don't you just uh, 20 times a day, you know, just prostrate. In, in the Orthodox tradition, they prostrate. They do this. They only have a face like this, right? Now... It used to be easier to get up. <laughs> but he would prostrate. <laughs> Lord, have mercy, Christ. He, used to, he, would, he said, prostrate yourself 20 times a day. That's a lot, right? That's once an hour at least, right? So he said, do it for a month and then talk to me. So some time passes and the, the, the priest guy forgot about it. And then this guy comes, all bright-faced, you know, and smiley and said, Father... He said, you're not going to believe this. He said, well, what happened to you? He said, I started doing that. And somewhere in the course of the month, he said, God made himself known to me. Uh, it, it, what was going on? I mean, the only reason he's prostrating himself is the belief that something might be there. Even if you're that weak in your faith, like maybe who knows? God will meet you. Hip, hip, hooray. <laughs> this... This is the why of prayer. This is the why we come together in church. This is why we sing songs. Just dare to throw yourself into it just a little bit. This is the why of the Eucharist where we gather and participate in the bread and the cup where we're saying somehow Christ is present. We're just, we're just open to finding him. We're just seeking him on some level. I pray, uh, I use a breviary for prayer, which is a prayer book. There's all kinds of them. The one I sort of prefer is the, uh, the book of common prayer. And I'll read that twice a day. I mean, there's so many days I read through that and pray those prayers and I'm just going like wah, 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 wah. Just nothing's going on but every once in a while I hit pay dirt <laughs> and it's worth all the bore ring become a seeker James Jeremiah 29 says you will seek me and find me he's rigged it you remember parents when you had little kids and you did hide and seek you rigged the game right? So they could find you. And it was always commensurate. You know, when they're real little, you hide behind things like this. <laughs> you know, when they get a little older, you hide and they actually have to find you. You know what I'm saying? But you rig it so that they win. He says, I'm going to rig this. If you seek me, you'll find me. See, he's the original game maker. <laughs> but the trick, you seek me with all your heart. In other words, you have to be in. It can't be contingent. I'll seek you a little bit. I'll try this for a couple days. Now, he said, if you do it with your whole heart, which means you're in, you're just in, I will be found by you. I will be found by, God says, I'll let you find me. I'll let you find me. I'll let you find me. I'm in your life. If you dare to look, I'll let you find me. 
When you're driving to work, you should look over to this empty seat and say, I know you're in here. <laughs> See, I don't always find in a time frame I like, but I keep out of it, keep at it. And every once in a while, he appears. I'm claiming it will happen for you too. You just have to commit to seeking without time limit, without condition. You just simply need to do it with all your heart. Let me read this last little quote to you. This is from the Phenomenology of the Human Spirit. It's a pretty boring book, but uh, this great little piece in it. Robert Sokolowski, he's, a, he's, he's not a religious writer. He's a um, sociologist. So here's what he writes, quote, to say I'm still here in this world, or in this way, is a declarative use of the word I. It is neither a cognitional, or in other words, mental, or emotive or emotional issue or use. This usage is often found in religious language. When using the existential declarative, I do not promise or dedicate myself to any project in particular. I'm just there. For whatever may come and whatever needs to be seen or done. But I am still there. And I declare myself as such as a dative, a person engaged in veracity. This is the secret. It's a person that just says, man, sometimes I don't believe in you. Maybe today I don't believe in you. You know what? I'm in. For whatever comes, I'm in. I'm a seeker. This space we call sanctuary, it's all about seekers. That's why we gather. Good news. He is risen. We are people of the water. We believe in a practice called baptism where we combine form, 